The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Cook for a man? Fine. The yard is too big? We'll hire someone to mow. Want to go back to school and get your master's degree? Go for it. But you don't want to have any more children with me. That's just heartbreaking. John Tompkins said something of the like to his wife Donna as he shook his head in disbelief. Fine, I'll let you do your own thing. But please just don't go. You're my wife. You'll always be my wife. But on April 1st, 1992, Donna packed up her and their daughter Justine's belongings. They left the Tompkins farm and her doomed marriage for an aunt's home in Canton, Illinois. A short drive through the countryside, home to grazing cattle, and characterized by the myriad of strip mine lakes and the charm of rural living. Canton, the largest community in Fulton County and the region's economic hub, with the Walmart, Kroger, McDonald's, skating rink, Dairy Queen, movie theater, and Farm King was home to roughly 14,000 souls in 1992. With a crime rate 17% lower than the national average, it was no wonder many felt safe calling Canton home. But the origins of the town began on a darker note. As back in 1825, settler Isaac Swan, believing where his cabin stood to be directly opposite the globe from none other than Canton, China, claimed his newly founded village, wrongly so, but the name stuck nonetheless. In fact, Canton simply means town. And in his new town, on the frontier, Isaac must have felt opportunity to begin anew, as endless as the horizon and as broad as the sky. 
But Isaac would soon learn that the sky, darkening upon the world which it looms, often has plans of its own. And one day in June of 1835, the wind picked up, the quality of the light turned an ominous orange hue, and then green, before the day turned to night, as a twister dropped down from the angry clouds hanging low above, which had blown in on such a lovely summer's day. In the devilish turn of air and debris of which nightmares are made of, aligned its path of carnage directly for the small settler's cabin. It rained hell down upon the sheltering family within, cutting not only their fortune, but their future short. As the sky returned to that brilliant blue, were discovered the bodies of not only Isaac Swan, but that of his infant child, dying in its mother's arms. The event led many in the community to conclude that the tornado had represented divine retribution for the town. Oddly enough, Canton was again hit by an F3 tornado on July 23, 1975, a century and a half later. And along with two deaths, the storm wrecked havoc. And of course, the townspeople had relished in the forsaken pleasures within the canvas walls of a circus tent again, just one week prior, in fact. The first circus to entertain Canton since their founder's death in 1835. The Canton City Council passed an ordinance banning circuses within city limits in perpetuity. For over a century, for all time, had been undermined by room and pillar coal extraction that began in the 1800s. Sinkholes occasionally occurred, but most areas afflicted by mine substance had been redeveloped as parkland and recreational lakes. With abundant coal and labor and proximity to railroads in the Illinois River, Canton's destiny was to become a factory town. The legacy began in 1840 when a man named William Parlin rode into town with three hammers, a leather apron, and 25 cents in his pocket. He opened his own blacksmith shop and soon invented the first steel plow in the history of the world. The small shop eventually grew into a large factory, P&O, when he partnered with Ulysses Orndorff. P&O was bought out by International Harvester in 1917, the same year William Parlin's contribution to the advancement of agriculture would reach its climax, and his picture was placed in the Illinois Farmers Hall of Fame. In its heyday, the IH factory constructed in the heart of town, which divided the town into fourths. The factory employed upwards of 2,000 people, the economic hub of the community. The factory whistle nicknamed Big Toot regularly sounded seven times a day as it announced for workers the beginning of shift, lunchtime, and the day's end. Such a giant pillar of the community seemed the epitome of resilience. Still, after a walkout in the late 70s, the factory followed a rust belt trend and shut its doors by 83. The massive structure sat empty and abandoned for years its windows shattered by angsty youth, its walls gradually coated in layers of spray paint. After the closure of IH, many residents had little choice but to seek work elsewhere, commuting to Caterpillar and Peoria, and other manufacturing plants, a 45-minute drive up Route 24 along the Illinois River. A town once lush with business, where it was not uncommon to see Corvettes lined up out front of lavish storefronts, and swollen taverns about the town square, Canton had radically transformed into a bedroom community seemingly overnight, leaving many buildings downtown which had survived the tornado 
to gradually board up, spreading like a plague down Main Street. As merchants closed shop, a few too-beloved-to-fail establishments, including Brown's Diner, managed to hang on. According to the Canton Daily Ledger, itself dating back to 1850, Once were headlines once rolled off the tip of the tongue of the giant iron press and a clamoring rattle that shook the block. Recently stated that Brown's snappy service began dishing out hamburgers at a nickel each. Six for a quarter, back in 1937, in a 12 by 24 foot, seven stool stand on the square in Canton. The counter packed at lunch by locals chatting about the glory days. The town, once active with streetcars and backed up with horse-drawn wagons, replaced by tin lizzies, and then the classics of the golden age, a town once lined with candy cane barber poles spinning endlessly, newspaper stands flourishing, with newsboys shouting the headlines from the curb, perfect players, good drugs, up and down the block that read, Smith and Sons, Sam and Sons, Sonny and Sons, Bugs. Drive slow and see town, drive fast and see jail. Fresh meats, fancy fancy, since 1886, since 1882. And so on, as high above in giant block letters atop those limestone buildings towering into the midwestern sky, etched at the crest of each facade in granite keystone, Orendorf, Randolph, Churchill, Emerson, and above all, a rusty water tower on the perimeter of the factory grounds. In bold white letters, Canton, home of the little giants, those very men who lived and died, digging out that maze of room and pillar that lied mysteriously beneath, home to mystery, a passage of ghosts, those whose gas lanterns had long burned out. And on the northwest corner of the square, the most colorful place of all, Gustine's Drugstore, a feast for the eyes through the glass at the curios as one slowly passed as a child or entered to dazzle the sweet tooth before the fantastic display of sugar-coated wonder, or settling in before the soda fountain for a cold cherry fizz. But by the time the factory closed, leaving Big Tooth to scream out to those spirits who no longer line up out front of the gates, sipping on coffee, lunch pails in hand, times had come down hard on the community. A community left to find solace in what was left, the diner, the land, hunting and fishing, and the junior varsity football team, the Canton Little Giants, who played under the Friday night lights before the stands full of cheer and pride. But not only for what was, but for what might become, for the future generation, those hometown heroes under those buzzing floodlights. Hope and angst make for a cocktail that often went to the head and suds of six-packs guzzled in the stadium lot by a rowdy, discontent crowd of teens. A tough bunch, who would rather bet on the spirit of the times than worry about the future. A group reputed to chase the opposing team out of town with baseball bats and fists after the game. But overall, Canton, as most hamlets sprinkled about the Inland Empire, was a friendly place filled with people who tipped their hats and offered a warm hello to passing neighbors and strangers alike. Teens made endless loops up and down the strip around the town square in their hot rods, passing those furrowed buildings of limestone block, red brick, and what was left of the traditional candy-striped awnings that made for all American storefronts 
at the heart of an all-American town. Jones Park was in the center of the square, an oval oasis of maple and poplar trees. A brick pathway ran down its center, circling about a liberty pole for an octagonal bandstand. Early rising folks sat cross-legged in casual conversation beneath the American flag, drawing a fine line between this and that in the twilight of their lives. Donna, shaken but not deterred to get on her feet, hadn't stayed with her aunt for long before moving with Justine into the small upstairs apartment at 207 South 1st, an avenue lined with broad-limbed trees and crumbling brick sidewalks. Donna soon filed for divorce, and John was court-ordered to seek therapy for anger management. Money was tight for Donna, and John was refusing to pay child support. The married couple downstairs were often disturbed by their fighting as John incessantly came by to argue with his estranged wife. But Donna was slowly drawing her boundaries, and along with distancing herself from the marital chaos, not only for her own sanity, but for Justine's well-being. If John were to be of no help, she would fend for herself, she decided. A woman named Jennifer McMillan, whom Donna had befriended while working at the National Bank of Canton, let Donna know she might be able to make some extra cash working at the Elks Club, which sat just a block north of the bank. Jennifer said she knew David Haynes, the manager, who was looking for someone to tend the bar. Jennifer even offered to babysit Justine so Donna could pick up the weekend hours. So in late summer, Donna contacted Terry Haynes. He not only offered her the job, but he also invited Donna to come to watch him bowl at Lynn Lane's and have a few drinks. She obliged. The two had met prior, as Terry was also the local UPS driver. So the two hit it off and went on their first official date to the Peoria Riverboat Casino, where they spent a night gambling, drinking, and carousing on the Illinois River, overlooking the downtown city lights that glistened off the current. This night would spark a wildfire romance, a passion Donna was unprepared for so soon after everything she'd been through. Donna, unbeknownst to Terry's knowledge, had also met a guy named Rod Franciscovich at a Catholic church service. And one day in September, when Rod came into the bank to handle a bounce check at customer service, he was notified the department was downstairs. In the basement was also the trust office. where Donna worked and as Rod handled the matter, Donna noticed him and followed him upstairs to say hello. They stepped outside and talked briefly, and Rod felt she might be coming on to him. But when Rod asked her out on a date, Donna stated she was going through a divorce, something Rod himself knew all about. Donna said he did not believe it was a good time for her to begin dating. Rod took the rejection okay, but love-struck he professed his feelings for the kind woman he had met at the bank to his roommate Scott Roop. Scott, feeling bad for Rod's aching heart, took it upon himself to call up Donna at the bank. When he got her on the line, he simply said, I just wanted to let you know that you have a secret admirer. But it didn't take much conversing with the outgoing Donna, before he confessed that he was indeed a friend of Rod's. Scott was taken aback as Donna opened up, telling Scott she had just moved to town, where she lived and about the impending divorce from her abusive husband, John. She even went on to talk about her sick mother, and Scott became a vehicle of catharsis. It all came out, and at the end of the conversation, feeling relieved, 
Donna decided to tell Scott, to tell Rod. As long as they could take it slow, she'd give it a shot. Rod was thrilled at the news, and knowing that Donna felt vulnerable, was very sweet and kind to her, respecting her desire to take things as unhurried as possible. They'd go to dinner out of town, often taking Justine. Meanwhile, Donna was also going on motorcycle rides with Terry through the countryside, and out to dinner as well, almost always out of town. But it is not so clear if Donna was avoiding the two men running into each other while on a date with her, but what is certain is that she was avoiding John. Terry came to think of John as an asshole, as both men knew by now all about John, that he was an angry man who would blow up at the drop of a hat. He would call Donna at work non-stop in her house late at night, only to hang up on her after she'd crawled out of bed to answer the phone. And John would stop by even at those inopportune hours, but almost never to pick up Justine. And John indeed did blow up when he caught Donna and Terry together in her apartment one day. And from that day forth, Donna always kept her door locked, never letting John cross that threshold into her apartment in new life again. While Rod got into the habit of coming over late at night, usually around 1am after getting off work at Office Max in Peoria, Terry and Donna would meet up during lunch hours, usually at her apartment, as seemingly Rod's place was mainly off limits, seeing he was still talking to his ex-wife off and on. Not only did this concern Donna, but she had also heard at the Elks Club that Terry was heavily into drugs, possibly embezzling, and that he had beaten his wife pretty severely and was sent to rehab. Rod, being divorced, with two kids he did not have custody of, yet supported financially, empathized with Donna. The two grew closer, and she finally told him about her relationship with Terry. Donna complained that he would drink too much and shout at her and call her names. He was being possessive like John, and she was growing somewhat afraid of him. And after one last argument with Terry about him still seeing his ex-wife, the confrontation turned into an all-out fight, the likes that she had not experienced since leaving the farm. So Donna decided, undoubtedly at Rod's nudging, to break things off with Terry. But by now, Terry was hooked. Donna had become a drug for him. Whether it be the sex, the connection, or simply a matter of possessiveness or possession, Terry went off the deep end. Rod insisted the two agree to vocalize their commitment to one another, a singularity to only be with him, no one else, and certainly not Terry. Rod made Donna promise she would tell him if he had contacted her again, as Terry had begun to drive by Donna's house at all hours, looking for Rod's truck and keeping track of her. He even started calling Rod's house when she was there, making utterly insane statements to Donna over the phone as Rod listened in. I know where you are. I've been watching you, waiting for you. You'll soon realize you love me. And the statement earning itself a chapter title of its own. God will tell you that you belong to me. Now whether these outbursts and this behavior were drug or alcohol induced, insanity or borderline in the least, the throes of heartbreak, or simply the antisocial actions of a sociopath, 
I am not one to say. But what I can be sure of is that Donna had not only now found herself stepping away from one nightmare, but directly into another, as she was currently being stalked by two men at the same time. Also, not only was Terry threatening Donna, essentially telling her God would call her up, insisting she belongs to him, and only he, but John was also calling Donna up late at night to remind her to pay her insurance policy, the one he had just taken out on her life. And Donna, never forget, you will always be my wife. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.